Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The open season clock is ticking. Federal employees and annuitants have just until Monday to make any changes to their health care options for 2024. Now, not every enrollee in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program should make a change to their plan, but at least be sure you understand what's available out there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And there are lots of things that experts recommend taking a look at, including taking a look in the first place at comparable plans and what they cost, fair to say? Exactly, Tom. I think that is the number one piece of advice here. Even if you're not going to make a change, it is really strongly advised from a lot of different federal health care experts that you at least take a look, see what's changing within your own plan Not every plan stays the same year to year. So even if you are uh, rolling over into the same plan for the next plan year, things might look a little bit different year to year. Uh, Some feds, you know, they might be in the position where they haven't looked for several years. And so uh, federal health experts, just as they do every year, are encouraging uh, employees and annuitants to take a look. You know, in these uh, plan brochures, there could be things like cost share changes. There could be new benefits added things that are no longer available. So it's just uh, very wise. That's the general advice. If you're not going to make a change, at least take a look. Sure. And some plans you might have liked that weren't in your area now might be. And you could have the rug pulled because some plans are pulling out from where you are. And then you'll get automatically assigned to an OPM designated, I think it's a GEHA plan. And so, yeah, you want to stay in control, basically. What are some of the big changes in coverage and options for 2024? Well, in terms of the number of plan options, Tom, that I think is a is a big one to take note of. Uh, participants now can select from 158 total plans. That's a quite a significant drop off from the 271 that were available for the 2023 plan year, and that is mostly due to the fact that Humana is leaving the program. Uh, those who were enrolled in a Humana health plan will be automatically enrolled in the lowest cost health plan if they don't make a positive election. But that is something to pay attention to, to anyone who uh, was enrolled in one of those programs. In terms of types of uh, different coverages and things of that nature, we're going to see a big increase in infertility treatment coverage. Uh, That's a big one for 2024. Maternal health care, gender affirming care. So those are a lot of the areas a lot of areas where uh, the Office of Personnel Management is setting higher requirements for carriers to offer coverages in those areas. Um, For the military side of things, they're going to get access to dependent care flexible spending accounts. So this can go, uh, these are pre-tax contributions that can go towards dependent care services like child care, elder care, things of that nature. So there are a lot of things to, to keep in mind this year. And no matter what you do, it looks like premiums are going up, I think, on the average of nearly 8% following nearly 9% last year. So those aren't even across the board, though, necessarily. Right. We have seen for a couple of years in a row now that there are big health premium increases for at least the enrollees share. It's going up 7.7% on average for 2024. But as you said, Tom, that's an average. So that means not every plan is going to be going up. There are going to be some that are decreasing, some that are staying about the same. So it is prudent to take a look here and see, okay, is my plan going up? All of that information on the plans and the the rates there is going to be available in your plan brochure. So that's on the last page, I believe. 
Right. Yes, that for sure. I mean, all the information is there. You just exactly. have to open it up and s- spend a couple hours reading it. It's supposed to rain Sunday, so that might be a good day to do it. <laughs> but that is taking you down to the wire since Monday is the last day of open season. And one way people can hedge against these costs perhaps is going from self plus one to having individual plans for your partner or spouse, provided you look at the dedu- deductibles, because that can have an effect on that. What are some other things people can do to keep costs under control. The one that people talk about a lot is using a flexible spending account. The FSA Feds program, which OPM runs, uh, it basically lets you set aside, again, pre-tax contributions where you can cover uh, you know, things like healthcare expenses, prescriptions, uh, dental and vision coverage, and a child and adult daycare expenses as well. So it covers a broad range of things. This is, the program is available to all current federal employees, but only about 20% actually use the FSA Feds program. So that's a, a really big one where OPM and other federal health experts, such as Kevin Moss, who we've spoken to on a number of occasions, uh, have really recommended taking advantage of FSA Feds. Notably, if even if you have an FSA Feds account, uh, you will need to opt in again the next year. It doesn't automatically roll over. And some of those funds, if you had an FSA this year and you're carrying it into next year, you can roll over uh, $610 of unused funds. So you, it is a good way to kind of budget out and see uh, what, what you can cover there. But the point is you've got to make sure you actively enroll in it, opt-in each year. So that's exactly. something that's not going to happen automatically. And aside from reading all of the coverage that our own Drew Friedman, you, have been providing for these many weeks, what are some of the other resources feds can look to for help in the weekend they still have left to get to open season? Great question. There's a lot of different resources, even if you've procrastinated. All that stuff is out there for federal employees and annuitants in the program. Number one, the Office of Personnel Management's website has a plan comparison tool where you can compare, I believe it's up to four plans at once, and see what's available uh, both regionally and then based on what your coverage needs are. You also can, as you mentioned, Tom, look at the plan brochures. You can look at the last page to check the premium rates. You can check Section 2 to see what is changing from this year to next year. And you can also, of course, there's other resources like uh, the Consumer's Checkbook Guide. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of resources for federal employees to, to consider this year. All right. Nobody can say we didn't tell you. <laughs> federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And by the way, for more information, check out our own open season exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. Lots of information there. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.